In a book called Knowing Sin by a man named Mark Jones, there was a quote about sin that I think encapsulates uh, so much of what we are concerned about with the doctrine of sin as it unfolds, discloses the human heart. Jones says that sin is the soul's disease. And if our body gets a disease, we're rightly concerned about this. We think, okay, what's that mean? How far along is it? What is that going to imply? We are concerned about treatment, diagnosis, all the things if we hear of a physical malady. Jones says sin is the soul's disease. And he goes on to explain what this disease, what its condition results in. He says sin is the soul's disease, blinding the mind, hardening the heart, disordering the will, stealing strength, and dampening the affections. There's a lot to think through. A lot of phrases there. The blinding the mind. So we're thinking about what we ought to trust and believe. What we ought to see and perceive. Sin inhibits that. Hardening the heart. The things we ought to love and pursue. What we ought to rejoice in. The heart is hardened to things that it ought not be hardened to. And it isn't rejecting of and, um, and refusing of things that it ought to turn from. Disordering the will reminds us that the path that we walk and the direction of our hearts and minds and steps in life that follow that heart, that our will suffers from sin. Our will is affected. All the faculty of our being is affected by sin. That's what we mean biblically by the doctrine of total depravity. We mean that sin, the soul's disease, has not left any part of us untouched. Stealing the strength, stealing strength and dampening the affections, we realize that for, so, for sin to be the soul's disease, it has wreaked great havoc indeed. And it's helpful for the book of Proverbs to talk about what the wicked want and the path the wicked pursue and the end that the wicked will receive. Because like a good physician, the word of God tells us the truth. The good physician, the faithful shepherd, the Lord Jesus, by the words like these from Proverbs 15, is going to tell us about this soul's disease and what's going on within the mind and heart of the wicked. But not only that, to contrast what a state in Christ would look like, what spiritual health and flourishing would involve. We need to think about those binary ideas because the paths of sin and folly, the paths of righteousness and wickedness, the paths of life and death, the, the Bible in, book, in the book of Proverbs specifically deals with these categories and Christ has come to deliver us from sin. Not just in how it has affected our soul, but the corruption upon our very bodies. We will be saved, not just inwardly made new, but risen from the dead. And so sin will be no more in its effect on us. So we have a Redeemer, and He is wholly committed to His people to actualize in our lives, both present and future, all of what His redemption means for us. It's really good news. It's really good news. I've shared with you before a quote from D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar. He said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And that's so true. That's so true. We're not suffering from anything that a resurrection from the dead will not be a remedy for. Um, so with this sin being the soul's disease and with a focus upon the wicked with some helpful contrasts, we look at in verses 25 through 29, this unit of thought. And I want to I notice a few things about 
structure of this. Look at the first and last verse of our passage tonight. Verse 25 and verse 29 is speaking about something the Lord does. In verse 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, maintains the widow's boundaries. That's verse 25. And then in verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the words of the righteous. Not only is the word Yahweh, or the Lord in all caps here, uh, framing our unit tonight, it speaks of actions of the Lord. And within that, verses 26, 27, and 28... We get a deeper dive within the heart and actions of the wicked. What is it that they're about? What is it that lurks within them? Um, In verse 25, we see a contrast with what the Lord tears down and what he protects. The verb maintains, I'm going to say that this word maintains, it's synonymous with the idea of protects. Rises to defend, comes to act on behalf of. So the Lord tears down and the Lord protects. That's the contrast here. Maintains the widow's boundaries. We'll think about how that involves protection. Your life is a house. Jesus thinks of your life as a house. And that's not only because Jesus is the son of God. Faithful Jewish readers of the Old Testament would recognize that when Jesus is speaking of the house of the the life built on solid ground and the life built on sand that's unstable, that uh, building is something all of us are doing with the decisions we're making. That's an endeavor we're all a part of. It's unavoidable because even to cease to do one thing is a choice that we've made. So we're building. We've got a house that we're constructing. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Now, to tear down a house, I mean, there must be something that lies behind, from a horizontal perspective, the efforts of a company or a family to say, all right, this house has got to go. And you might say that maybe the wood and the foundations are just riddled with whatever it is that just should not be just, you know, papered over with something. It's got to come down to the very core. If you imagine this as a targeting of the wicked, which I think is correct, the Lord's judgment is upon the arrogant. This is not someone then who is a believer in Yahweh struggling with you know, humility. The house of the proud refers to the defiant, the arrogant, the self-exalting. They don't love God. They don't fear God. The arrogant are those who mock the idea of fearing the Lord. And so they're building their life not fearing God. It's not a concern for them. It's not how they factor, what they factor in when they make decisions. They don't ask, would this be pleasing unto the Lord? Would this glorify and honor Him with the work going on in my life and my witness for Christ? What would that mean? The proud do not worry about that. The proud are called such because they're the opposite of dependent on the Lord. They're the opposite of humble before the Lord. They are self-exalting and therefore proud in their arrogance And the life that they build will face the judgment of God. When Jesus says that those who hear his words and do not do them, and the storm that comes and the waves that crash just wreck this house, and great is its fall, Jesus is simply saying, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. That's what he's saying in Matthew 7. I'm not saying he has Proverbs 15, 25 in mind, perhaps. But he's still talking about the life of the rebel facing the judgment of God. And one of the reasons that one of the ways arrogance and self-exaltation could manifest 
is implied in the second line. If the contrast tells us the Lord maintains the widow's boundaries, what do we have in mind with boundaries and why do they need to be maintained? Boundaries here are property lines. This is a place where a widow would dwell, and it's very clear in the ancient world what a destitute situation being a widow could put yourself in. It it was, through loss of husband or livelihood, a very challenging situation where people could pray upon you, not pray with you, different kind of praying, pray upon you as a predator seeking to take advantage of you, including, without your awareness, moving markers that would designate where your field is. And so the boundaries here, we're to imagine property that's been set apart, designated maybe an inheritance, maybe the only thing this widow has left. And somebody says, well, I I figured out a way I can leverage this situation for my benefit because maybe I'm next door. And, uh, you know, if she goes to bed, I can go over there and just, you know, maybe half an inch a day, just move some rocks. Just move some boundary markers. Who's going to notice? And it's a way of moving the widow's boundaries that represents taking advantage of the one who is in need. That is a height of folly and arrogance. It is the opposite of love of neighbor. It's to see the neighbor in a situation and thinking about how that can benefit you. This tells us then, the Lord tears down the house of the proud... But he maintains the widow's boundaries and the widow's need represents the Lord's care for the vulnerable. And so this is a warning for the wicked. It's a warning for the wicked who think I can build my life taking advantage of other people. I can make my decisions. I can build my wealth. I can accrue this and and garner my reputation in this way by preying upon in a predatory sense, the vulnerabilities, the loopholes that I find. Maintaining the widow's boundaries is something the Lord does. And this is something that the prophets call to mind in books like Micah, the minor prophet, or Isaiah, the much larger prophet. In Micah chapter 2, verse 2, the wicked are indicted for this. They covet fields and seize them. They covet houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. You see, the wicked, by their position, they can look at what someone says and they think, well, if I just do this and this and pull this lever, that's going to become mine. And so out of sheer greed and covetousness, they want what someone else has. They find a way to do it, to disadvantage another person so that they can enrich themselves. It's their plan. Like, that's their strategy. Their strategy is to enrich themselves at the expense of another person. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. It's envisioning someone who is living in a field, and he says, Well, I'd like the field next to me, and here I've got this house, I'd like the one next to me. And so to try to get what they can to disadvantage another because of some uh, poorer person, this widow here that seems to represent the needy, thinking, listen, I don't care about what that person needs. I don't care about what would benefit them. I just want these things. And so the prophets indict those people for what turns out to be a lack of love for neighbor. That's what moving the widow's boundaries would represent. Now, of course, other, other people besides widows 
could be in very disadvantageous situation, in situations in the ancient world. You think about the tragic state of orphans in the ancient world, in the New Testament era, and in countries around the world right now, situations of great need. And people who could look at that situation and rather than loving the one and seeking to meet such need, they think about, what can I get from that? Here, you know, they're unsuspecting or they're powerless. What can I do to enrich myself? So the Lord tears down the house of the proud. This means, I think, that the proud have sought to build their life in ways the dishonor of the Lord. They have not feared God and they will reap what they sow. In other words, they have sown wickedness in the way that they conduct themselves with their neighbor. What will that mean? The judgment from the living God upon their very head. The implication here is not just an observation. I think we should see as an implication whether we ought to not be those seeking to enrich ourselves at the disadvantage of others so that we can just get more rather than loving our neighbor when we see opportunities to love neighbor and thinking instead, oh, but you know, if I go about it this way, you know, forget them and what would be better. Look, I, I want this. A proverb like this is making an observation about the judgment of God on the proud so that we wouldn't live that way, right? So there's, a, there's an implication there that ought to draw the heart towards saying, well, the Lord, the Lord defends the needy, the vulnerable, the, the orphan, the widow. If the Lord maintains her boundaries, in other words, anything we do is always done before the watching eye of God, then that ought to cultivate a fear of God in how we conduct ourselves. Not only is this contrast between what the Lord tears down and what He protects, we move to verse 26, a contrast between what is an abomination and what is pure. The actions of the wicked always stem from their thinking. Something that they are deliberating. And maybe they haven't deliberated for very long. Maybe it's not been you know, a plan for the past decade to continue taking, disadvantage, uh, taking advantage of those that they can. But uh, whether it's recent or long-lasting, they've got thoughts that to God are an abomination. In verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. We might have expected the contrast to be thoughts all the way through. Maybe sounding something like, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination and the thoughts of the righteous are pure. Now I still think the contrast holds in that sense. But the thoughts that are voiced as words is what you get in the second line, right? Thoughts that have now been spoken. Now, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination because when their thoughts become words and their words become strategies and their strategies are acted out toward others, they don't have clean hands and pure hearts. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? They don't care. That's not what they want. They simply want what they can get. And it doesn't matter who they have to trample over. The thoughts of the wicked, therefore, are an abomination to God. Not only because they're an offense to God's holiness. They are an absolute uh, horror in terms of uh, image bearer to image bearer relations. The thoughts of the wicked, therefore, are an abomination. And that's a strong word. In some cases, it can be found in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system of sacrifices that are unacceptable. It's a repulsive situation. Something that's offered to God that's an abomination. It's repugnant. If we see that God views something as an abomination, something that is repugnant, that ought to really catch our eye as readers because that's not a word thrown around. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination because the wicked don't just keep their thoughts in. Those thoughts become words and strategies 
to enrich one's own self, and whether it's greed and lust or whatever else, at the expense of others and to the dishonor of God himself. Why would the contrast say that gracious words are pure? Who's speaking those? Well, I think we have to keep with the contrast here. If the thoughts of the wicked are part of line one, the gracious words are not spoken by the wicked. Those are of the righteous. So the thoughts of the wicked are not acceptable to God, but the gracious words, the words of God's people, are acceptable to God. And that's because the righteous are those who give care to what they say. They want what they say to be in love of God and love toward neighbor. And they're not interested in living a life of wickedness. That's not what they want. Now they recognize they still sin. They recognize sneers and temptations are all over the place. But the direction of their life is not like the wicked. And therefore their words, their gracious words are pure. They don't want to take advantage of the widow's boundaries. They want to come alongside seeing the need that is present and say, how can I further ensure and support this one who is in need so that they're not taken advantage of? And the gracious words, therefore, are pure for God's people because they speak the truth. Gracious or pleasing. Your translation might say, if it's something other than the ESV, it may say something like pleasant words are pure. Gracious or pleasant words, they're pure by the standard of God himself. So that's the standard here. Pure words, gracious words, these are not relative terms. It's in terms of what would conform to the righteousness of God. And therefore, words that are right, words that pursue what is just, words that honor God and bless neighbor, these words are pure because they conform to the God who has made us to live in such a way. These are the words that help us flourish. Wicked thoughts that result in wicked words, that become wicked, deceptive strategies, even though we think we might gain in the short term, sin is not a winning strategy. Folly and rebellious living and taking advantage of others, that is a self-destructive way of living. It might not look that way. Initially, it might seem to pay off. You just need to go back to verse 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. And so you might be thinking, all right, this house is looking really good, feeling quite invincible. I'm, I'm uh, you know, house here representing the metaphor here of, of our life, right? I, I'm, this has turned out really well for me. I've got this and I'm building this. But the Lord tears down the house of the wicked. So whatever short-term gain sin seems to get, we need the long-term perspective because the Bible sees farther down the road than we do. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Gracious words are pure The next contrast seems to bring together still this theme of what the wicked want and house. In verse 27, do you see how the house metaphor is brought up again? Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. And so again, we're talking about relationships. Someone's life and the life they're intertwined with. Oh, how the wicked must remind themselves that the decisions they make affect other people. This household here seems to envision someone who is pursuing unjust gain and the people that they live with will suffer because of it. Whoever is greedy, well, right there we're tapping into an inward desire. What's one of the things that drives the wicked? Man, they just want and want and want. They're so greedy. They just want more, more things, more money. They can't ever have enough. It's an insatiable appetite. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain. See, they don't even care if it's wealth 
rightly and justly accumulated. They just want gain. They don't care if it's unjustly gained. They're fine with unjust gain because what they want is gain. They don't want the glory of God. They don't want to honor God. They don't fear God. So they're greedy even for unjust gain. Wealth wrongly accumulated. Whoever's greedy for unjust gain, you know what they bring to those around them? Trouble. Sin is not only a self-destructive way of living. It is a household corroding way of living. It brings trouble on his own household. You think, well, I don't want to bring trouble on my own, ho- my own household, but I really think that this will be fine, and I can get away, and I can get this, and then I'll stop. And you, you, you can justify and reason away, and you can hear the excuses people make because their greed is just so predominant. And then the trouble that they bring, marriages that dissolve, children that are damaged, prison sentences that are announced. The the kind of unjust gain that people have and the trouble that they bring on their lives and the lives of others. When some Old Testament commentators were remarking on this verse and they brought up the story of Achan in Joshua 7 and about how in the conquest of the land they were forbidden to be taking all of these spoils of war into their own households and all of that. Achan disregarded that. And he acquired unjust gain and it was trouble for himself in his whole household you read in joshua chapter 7 the terrible fallout of this it is not a wise strategy one of the one of the the insights in the book of proverbs i think is that proverbs is giving us wisdom for flourishing in god's world god's way doesn't mean everything goes perfectly in a fallen world doesn't mean we can predict all the outcomes of decisions we have made But it does mean as far as it depends on us, as far as we can put one foot in front of the other and make one decision after another, let us try to do what is in the in in wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. That to do that is to not put yourself in rebellion against God, but to be blessed of the Lord and to flourish in life in Christ. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. You see, here's another inward thing in the verse is tapping into. The first line, someone's greedy. They've got this inward desire and they want what they shouldn't want. Here's someone who hates bribes. And this is what I think is part of the soul's disease that Mark Jones was talking about. The soul's disease disorders the will and dampens the affections. We end up wanting what we shouldn't want. And we end up turning from what we ought to pursue. Here, the proverb is talking about someone who wants what they shouldn't, unjust gain. Line number two, here's someone hating what they ought to hate. Oh, God help us to order our will and our affections in such a way that we love what we should love and hate what we should hate. This person hates bribes. The very idea of unjust gain repels them. They're not like, well, you know what? I'm sort of neutral on this. I could go either way. I really love the idea. Oh, it's just so. Here's someone who hates it. They recoil at the idea of leveraging some opportunity to defraud someone else. And here, it's, it's a situation where their decision would be bought and paid for in advance. They're being bribed. And this person says, I don't operate that way. 
My words, my actions, I cannot be bought. I live for the glory of God. So keep your money. Here's a person who says, I hate bribes. You're not going to buy my testimony, my words, my actions. I live for God alone. This is a person who loves what they should love and they hate what they should hate. And they hate sin. They hate bribes. Well, that person, they don't bring trouble on their own household. They live. And I think it's more than just physical and financial blessing here. I think this is a promise of flourishing in spiritual life with God. They live, not, both, not just now, but life with God in the future. They are marked by someone who's trusting God. So what does their life look like? Well, they're on the path of life. So that means down the road is not condemnation and death, spiritually. No, whoever hates bribes, that indicates something about where their heart is before God. It's not because they're without sin that they're going to live. It's because they're trusting God and not money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus said it. In Matthew 6, he tells you that you have to choose. You think of Joshua 24, where Joshua says, choose this day whom you'll serve. And the gods of our age and the gods of our culture would love for you to live for money. But Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas, he said one time, everything you own is the stuff of future garage sales, junkyards, and dumps. That's some perspective, isn't it? Might be quite discouraging, actually. (laughs) You don't want to think of your stuff like that. Oh, but Chandler is so right. Everything you own is the stuff of future garage sales, junkyards, and dumps. We can't live for those things that moth and rust destroy. So the teachings of Jesus connect so profoundly with the teachings here in like Proverbs 15 and elsewhere of this book. It's wisdom for living and following Christ. Whoever is greedy for gain, unjust gain, troubles his own household. He who hates bribes will live. Oh, the terrible things that happen to the lives of people out of their love for money. Paul tries to warn us about this because there's nothing new under the sun. The things that glitter, the gold that shines, that seems to draw us to say, okay, I just want to do whatever I need to do to get more. 1 Timothy 6.9 Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many, not few, many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And then he says, it is through this craving That some have wandered away from the faith. Can you imagine? It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, many griefs. Have pierced themselves. No one imagines love of money as being that which will be piercing their own lives with griefs and pangs of sorrow. And yet the Bible is warning us about disordered desires and where that leads. God help us to not be greedy. Help us to love right and good and faithful labor. Help us to hate what we should hate and love what we ought to love. And ultimately trust the Lord. Because to love a bribe and to be greedy for unjust gain, at root, one of the things that is present is a lack of trust and fear God. When those things are present, something else happens. Hatred of bribes makes sense because you love God and you trust God. You think, listen, God will supply my needs. I want to love God. I want to work hard. I want to be faithful and steward things well. I don't want to love sinful means of gaining money. 
And then he says in verse 28, another contrast. This is a contrast with what the heart of the righteous does and what the mouth of the wicked does. It's a contrast of the heart and the mouth. Earlier, we learned in verse 25, uh, I'm sorry, verse 26, about the inner state of the wicked, the thoughts, and then the words of the righteous that are pure. Here in verse 28, we're getting beneath the words of the righteous that are pure to their heart. And then the thoughts of the wicked that come out as words, well, what do those look like? So in verse 28, we see the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So you can't not say things, which means that as people who have to speak words, the righteous recognize the power of our words in the lives of others. The power that words play in relationships of friends and co-workers, spouses, parents with their children. Words Words carry profound and sometimes lifelong implication. And Proverbs says earlier in chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 2, mouths of fools pour out folly. Verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not the hearts of fools. So the book of Proverbs is very interested in the tongue. We've seen this on a number of fronts in our study of this book. And in the 15th chapter of the book so far, we recognize it's apparently a very recurring and needful theme for us to meditate about often. Given how often the writer of Proverbs, because how often do we use words? Let's just go ahead and say every day. So this means there's not a day that goes by where the wisdom of Scripture about our tongue is irrelevant. So relevant for us. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, which means they want to be slow to anger. They want to be quicker to deliberate and gather information. And they want to process and think about how to react, not rashly and temperamentally, because they recognize the wisdom of chapter 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. They want to speak in a way that's going to bring resolution and blessing, not in what's going to make things worse. And you have the power in your words to make everything worse in your relationships. But it doesn't have to be that way. We could heed the wisdom of Proverbs and recognize we all, at some level, need the wisdom of God upon our tongues So that we ponder how to answer. Pondering means I've got to think about what I'm going to say. Now personality wise. That might be easier for some of us than others. I'm more introverted. Not as extroverted. And so there might be an ease toward pondering versus not. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. This means that no matter one's personality type. There are introverted fools. They think about how they're going to answer. And then they answer vengefully and with reviling and repaying evil for evil. And they thought about it and decided that was the course to go. So personality type and bent has nothing to do with whether what happens is actually going to be wise or not. In verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. And I think the question they ask, it's not said here, so I'm just going to imply some things. Just to speculate reasonably for a moment. I think the pondering how to answer would be, how as a Christian... How, as a confessing Christian, would I handle this differently than if I were, you know, an unbeliever? In other words, I know God. I've come to know God in Christ Jesus. So as a Christian, what difference will that make in how I should think about this? What would the timing be? 
What words and demeanor and tone would I use? How could I engage this in a way that would be honoring to God and will help move this in the healthy direction this conversation needs to go? In other words, the righteous, they ponder how to answer because they know what's at stake. And I think they value the person more than they do trying to win an argument. They value the person as an image bearer more than if they can just get all their words out and all their point across as quickly as possible. They're talking to someone made in the image of God and that weighs so profoundly upon them that it affects how they ponder, how to answer. I'm just speculating here, but I think those are some of the things that we would want to say is involved in the heart of the righteous thinking about how to speak. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And this verb has been used earlier. Pondering, not pondering, uh, pouring out is a brook that is just bubbling up constantly. That's the image here in the original verb. It's to pour out without restraint, to have no guard, to just come out with words. We saw in chapter 15, last time we were together in this, in verse 23... To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. And I think verse 23 talks about words that are not only true, but timely. It's the right word at the right time. And man, we have all been the recipient of what a blessing that can be when someone brings to us the right word at the right time. And you think, my goodness, thank you, Lord. That is what I needed. And now is when I needed it. And you gave it to me. And here, the righteous ponder how to answer, but not the wicked. They don't think that way. The wicked, their mouth just erupts. They don't have self-control. They don't think about the good of neighbor and the glory of God. The last contrast tonight that this brings us to in verse 29 is the posture of the Lord toward the wicked. You know, why would the wicked need to weigh all of this? Why should they consider the state of their heart and what they desire and how their words and actions affect others? And what would be the benefit of those who are righteous continuing to live in such a wise way on this path of life? I think verse 29 gives some really strong incentive of why this unit would invite us to turn from the ways of the wicked and pursue the path of honoring and following the Lord. It says in verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked. But he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now one commentator is right in what he observed. He says, this nearness is not with respect to God's essence. Because God is everywhere, he says. It is with respect to his gracious and helpful presence. In other words, where God comes to our aid. To deliver and redirect. To provide and to bless When it says here, in other words, in verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, it means in that way. That the wicked don't look to God as their help. They don't look to God as their refuge. So with regard to being their help and refuge, the Lord is far from the wicked in that regard. He is near enough to them to tear their house down. So verse 29 matters, lest the wicked think, oh, okay, the Lord is far from me. Is that somehow good news for all the strategies I'm trying to employ? No, no, no. His help and deliverance, in this sense, you're you're not looking to him as refuge, are you? So rather than being near to you for your help, he's near enough to bring your house down. But for the righteous, those who look to God as their refuge... 
He hears his people. He loves his people. He is committed with steadfast covenant love to his people. So his people can come to him with confidence in prayer. We can know that when we pray, God hears us. We do not know all that God knows. This means that when we receive the answers from God, we have asked from our perspective, which is quite limited, and God answers from his sovereign, all good and holy, perfect ways and will. And therefore, we know, given who God is, we can trust him with everything we cast upon him. All of our prayers we utter. All of the griefs and moans and groans of our hearts that don't even form into words, like Romans 8 says, the Spirit hears us in our groanings and weaknesses. In verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, and that is bad news for them. Because if he's far from the wicked with regard to his covenant love, then that means he is near to them with his judgment and wrath. But his judgment is not near to us. Rather, the Lord's benevolent ear. We have that. A preacher said one time, the only person who could summon the king for a glass of water at three in the morning would be the king's son. Nobody else. (laughs) And if you imagine this to God, we have this kind of access. That no matter what time of day, no matter what our sorrow and circumstance No matter what our praise and rejoicing and what brings that and causes that. We can come to God as his people, not because we are perfectly morally righteous. The righteous here are those who have been counted righteous because their refuge is God. They've come to him in faith. They don't want the path of the wicked. They love God. God hears their prayers. Now in these uh, observations tonight, I've tried to draw some exhortations and applications from them as well. Things that we might want to consider about the path of the wicked and turning from that and strategies of sin and unjust gain that we would want to be far from and and life-giving and flourishing ways that ought to characterize our lives. But Spurgeon gives us a good caution here. The Lord in his wisdom, especially in Proverbs, calls us to obedience. But Spurgeon says, we shall never find happiness... By looking at our prayers, by looking at our doings, or our feelings. So Spurgeon is wanting to distinguish between the responsibility we have as the people of God to walk the path of life and to fear the Lord, but to recognize our happiness is not in looking at ourselves doing those things. Spurgeon says, it is what Jesus is and not what we are that gives rest to our souls. So when we look at the danger of building a house like the wicked person in verse 25 that the Lord will tear down, the proud and the defiant, we don't look at our humility before God in order to feel really good about where we are before God. And when we hear in verse 29 that the Lord hears the prayers of the righteous, we don't look at our prayers and feel really good about the prayers that we're praying and all the feelings and doings and actions Oh, I'm maintaining the widow's boundaries and I'm not taking advantage and sort of going through the various acts of obedience and patting ourselves on the back. Spurgeon says our happiness cannot lie ultimately in looking at our obedience. It must be in looking to Christ. And in this way, Spurgeon gives us a good caution, a healthy caution, that it is always Christ who is our hope and refuge and whose very life and our union with him from which flows a life of obedience, desiring to live in the fear of the Lord and to glorify Him in all that we do.
Let's pray.